on the board, on the screen. Um, this passage is really not a pleasant one. It's really not something that we like to think about. It's, it's, in fact, I want to give you a warning. I don't think I need to give you a warning, but I'm going to give you a warning just because it's the kind of guy that I am. Um, if, if you ever thought that being a Christian was all rainbows and lollipops, all blessings and no hardship, then this message may surprise you. Um, I hope that it does surprise you if that is your impression of the Christian life. Um, flip over to Matthew 16 and find verse 24. Uh, before we read, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time as far as introduction goes until we've actually read the text. So if you would, stand with me uh, for God's word this morning. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Father, as we look at this word today, we recognize that there is a cost to being your disciple. There is a cost to being a follower of Christ. Father, never let us lose sight of the fact that you call us to deny ourselves and take up our cross. Father, help us to study and understand what that means today. We pray this through Christ. Amen. Please have a seat. So... Like I said, this is not a, a, a uh, puppy dogs and, and kitty cats and happy, happy, joy, joy kind of message. This is, this is painful. This is hard. Not because it's surprising, I hope, like I said, that none of this is surprising for you. I'd like to think that most of you have been Christians long enough to realize that it is not all sunshine and rainbows in the Christian life, Right? Okay, good. Whew, got that out of the way. Um, but it's, it's not fun because we don't like to think about the cost associated with following Christ. Uh, this, this particular passage, starting in verse 24 um, and going through the end of the chapter, this comes sometime after the Caesarea Philippi confession. Uh, it could be just a couple of days. It could be up to a week or two. We don't know. Uh, that's not really our concern. But it comes after Peter declares Jesus' identity as the Christ. And then Jesus tells uh, the, the disciples that they would be the foundation of the church, that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. And then Jesus started teaching them what it means for him to be the Christ, what it means for him to be the one who's going to usher in the kingdom of God, and it wasn't what they expected. And so Peter argued with him because he's Peter. Um, and then, uh, you know, I, I wager a guess that Peter and the rest of the disciples didn't pay much attention to that rise again on the third day part. 
Because once you're dead, how do you get to set what you're going to do next? Right? That's just not how this works. Once you're dead, you're dead. There is no, I'm going to do this three days after I die. We, we tend to, you know, we, we think that way sometimes, but that's not how it works. Um, so Peter argues with Jesus, and then Jesus rebukes him for having his mind on earthly things instead of being on the will of the Father. That is the setting that we come to when Jesus drops the other shoe. Um, so let me explain this here. You've properly identified that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now let me explain what that means. I have to be turned over and beaten and abused and crucified, and then I will rise on the third day, and now here's what it means for you to follow me. You must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. How many times have you guys heard a message on this verse? Lots, right? So this isn't new news. What does it mean to deny yourself? That's deny yourself. But deny that we exist? Deny what? The, the Greek word that Matthew chose is a compound word. Uh, the, the, the compound word is aparneomai. The first part, the, the A-P-A, the apa, uh, apar, is, um, it means away from. It means to put something away from something else, to separate. And the second part, the naomai, means to deny. So it, it's not just to deny something or to, to, to uh, withhold something, that's kind of the deny idea, not to deny something's existence or to argue with somebody, but to to withhold something. The idea is not just to withhold something, but to withhold it and put it far away. The, the stronger form of deny here might be better translated as to disown. So Jesus says, if you will follow me, then you have to disown yourself. Well, that's, that's a little bit different than deny yourself, right? You have to disown yourself. This isn't just about some kind of vow of poverty or, or being super pious. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set aside one day of the week to do nothing but worship God. And, and that's not what Jesus is talking about here. This is a complete denial of self. Turning over what whatever ownership of self you might claim. Now, well, I know that my life isn't mine. It belongs to Christ. Yeah, you may know that, but is that how you live? Because we all make plans for what we're going to do. What, what are you going to do tomorrow? I'm going to go to work. I'm going to get up in the morning. I'm going to go to work. I'm going to do my day's work. I'm going to come home, right? Scripture even tells us that we need to be careful saying that because we need to keep in mind that that may not be God's plan for our tomorrow. There you go. 
And that's not saying that we have to speak that every time we say it, but we need to think it at the very least. That our plans for tomorrow may not come to fruition. And it's not just because we may not have a tomorrow. It's because God's plans are bigger than our plans. You know, on on August 29th, 2005, there were a lot of people whose plans suddenly changed because of a little hurricane. September 11th, 2001, there were a lot of folks whose plans suddenly changed. I had plans that morning. My plan was to go to work and do a whole bunch of preventive maintenance on the equipment that we had to maintain. And as I parked my car and I entered the gate to the fence next to my coworker, he says, did you hear about the plane crash? Plane crash. Yeah, flying over New York City, plane crashed in one of the World Trade Center towers. Wow, that's terrible. No, I didn't hear about that. By the time we got to the conference room, we watched the second plane crash. And all of a sudden, all those preventive maintenance inspections... Right out the window as we're trying to figure out how we're going to man the office 24 hours a day, how we're going to control aircraft from our location, how we're going to meet the Air Force mission, how many F-16s are going to be in the air flying around making sure things are safe. See, our plans and God's plans don't necessarily match. So we may say that I don't own myself. God owns me. But we don't live that way. And it's not just the good stuff, but it's the bad stuff. The bad stuff that we hold on to. You know, I, th- I think about the, the, the old hee-haw songs. I know what y'all are, y- y'all are familiar with those, you know. Gloom, despair, and agony on me. If it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. Right? How many times have you said that? How many times today have you said that? I know you all had to drive to get here. Um, we have to turn over everything. We have to take our hands off of everything. Ambitions, rights, privileges, wealth, family, plans, hopes, dreams, schemes, plots. God has all of it. When Jesus says we have to disown ourselves... He really means we have to disown ourselves. One of the best examples of what this looks like is Jesus. He says, if you're going to follow me, follow me. Deny yourself. In Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, I mentioned it in Sunday school this morning if you were paying attention. Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, who in himself had the fullness of divinity set all of that aside to do the Father's will. So when Jesus says, deny yourself, that's what he's thinking. Hmm. 
Humble yourself. Be obedient to what God commands, no matter the cost. As one of the ladies that that, uh, Steph used to read her blog all the time, she used to close just about every one of her blog posts online with the phrase, holding my plans loosely. I'm going to plan, because I think that's a smart thing to do. I'm going to, well, all right, most of the time, she plans. I don't plan anything. Closest I get is laying my clothes out the night before I go to work. Okay? But whatever plans we have, we can't hold on to them like this. We need to come before God with a hand like this and understand that He can change those plans in whatever fashion He wants to. We need to be humble. We need to be submitted to God's will. So Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. I've said this before. I'm going to say it again, and if it hurts your feelings, I'm sorry. All right? But I hear Christians say this all the time. Come to work limping because their gout's flaring up. Oh, it's just my cross to bear. You got a rebellious child. Well, I guess that's the cross that I have to carry. That's not what Jesus is saying. In first century Israel, there was only one thing that taking up your cross could mean. (laughs) And that means you have to literally carry the cross piece that is the instrument of your death. Turn over all of your plans and be willing to die to follow Christ. Deny yourself of even the life that you have. If I were to follow the the rules of the interpreters that I have studied in school and take this to a contemporary statement, then I would have to say in the infamous words of Disney Studios and Elsa, let it go. You have to let it go. You can't hold on to anything. If you're going to follow Christ, you have to give everything. Now, just in case that's not clear enough, Jesus goes on in verse 25. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I'm going to break that into pieces. Whoever would save his life will lose it. So what's he talking about there? He's talking about the person who would hold on to his life, who would keep something back from that denial of self, somebody who is not all in. Does that mean that if you hold back something from God that you are going to be condemned to hell? No. No. Whoever would save his life Whoever would hold that stuff back, what good's it going to do you? 
Because in the end, what happens to all of us? You're going to die anyways. So if you work yourself 80 hours a week, if you put all of your energies into earning money, if you put all of your worry and your care into the material world, if you do all of that, if you would hold that life, or as, as Copper's wife would say, if you hold your plans tightly, in the end, you're going to die anyways. You're still going to lose it. Whoever would save their life will lose it. Now the reason I'm saying that he's not pointing at condemnation to hell is because believers have always, since the first words of Scripture, have always struggled with holding something back. It's really easy for us to sing that second song. What was our second song this morning? I Surrender All. That's a piece of cake. I can say, I can sing that. That's an old-timey classic hymn that we've been singing in the church since at least the mid-1800s. I Surrender All. It's easy to say that. Completely another when your child rebels and starts using drugs. I surrender all. It's easy to say, all to him I freely give until your spouse lays in a hospital bed facing the end of their life. It's easy to say, I give God everything until the power gets shut off and you go without eating so that your kids can share the last package of instant oatmeal. The fact of the matter is, practically this is hard to do. And that's why Jesus says that this is equal to denying yourself, disowning yourself, giving up everything that you've got. Because following Jesus costs. It's not a magic carpet ride. It's hard. I told you all this was a hard message. This is why God convicted me to preach this way. Chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Because if I had my way about it, I would never preach this. I don't like this. I'm not fond of this. I don't like the idea that I have to stand in front of hardship and say, whatever God wills. That's hard. That's hard to face. I've been there. And if it wasn't our natural inclination to hold on to everything, Jesus wouldn't have had to say this. Jesus was special in that He submitted Himself to God's will 100%. Even in the garden when He was facing that death that He did not want to go through, He stood there and He prayed, God, if there is any other way, but it's not my will, it's yours. This is not easy. He is reminding the disciples that following Him isn't something that we do as a side job. I was once challenged by this 
think it was when I was in uh, Korea. When you introduce yourself to somebody. Right? This is kind of a, an American Western thing. When we introduce ourselves, especially in the military culture. Right? I'll give my name and I'll tell them what I do. Right? That's, that's how we introduce ourselves. Because that's how we identify ourselves. My name's Bill. I'm an instructor. I'm a preacher. I'm a father. I'm a husband. We identify ourselves that way. Right? At what point in that list do we say I'm a Christian? Now, don't feel bad because I'm part of this group. I'm the same way. We, we tend to walk around like, like we're new dogs at a dog park, right? You know, we, we kind of walk around the other dogs before we feel comfortable letting somebody know that, that we're a Christian. Following Jesus isn't a side job. That's supposed to be our identity. That's what Jesus is saying here. Following Him should be at the forefront of our lives. In the rest of it. So I'm, I'm Bill. I'm a Christian husband. I hope. Not saying I doubt my faith. Saying I hope my being a husband is Christ-like. I'm Bill. I'm a Christian father, I hope. That my being a parent is Christ-like. I'm a Christian instructor. Not that I teach Christianity, but I allow that faith to permeate what I teach, I hope. We need to be all in. Jesus doesn't just leave off with that little piece of depressing news that no matter how hard you grasp to save this life, you're still going to wind up losing it. But he says, whoever loses their life for his sake will find it. What does that mean? Is he talking just about those who become martyrs for the sake of the kingdom? I don't think it's just about that. I think that's included. Um, otherwise, he would be saying that justification is by martyrdom alone. And I don't think that's what he's indicating. When we look at the entire statement, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever looses his life. Whoever holds their plans with an open hand. Whoever turns everything over to God. Whoever denies themselves will find life. We will find something that's much more important than our bank account, the size of our house, or even the state of our family. We will find 
that people are important to God and they become important to us. When I'm less concerned with how much money I have to have, then I can start seeing the people that I work with as people and not just a means to an end. I can find that anxiety and worry and doubts over things that I can't control, those things are easier to push aside because I've given it to God. Open hands. You know, it's, it's funny in an ironic sort of way. There's a, a, a principle that I taught, I was learned, I, I, was, I was learned, I was taught, obviously speaking, wasn't it this morning? Um, a principle I was taught the day that I came to faith in Christ that has stuck with me and changed my entire Christian life. And it was taught at that Promise Keepers conference that I did not want to go to. They led us through an old Amish prayer. I don't know if you remember it or not. They had us all close our eyes. And through this prayer, there were some hand motions that went along with it. All right? So along with this prayer, right, you start with your hands open like this. Everybody do this. You start the prayer by saying, God, here are all of the burdens, all of the cares, all of the junk that I have in my life. All of the stuff that slows me down, all the sin, all the addictions, all the yuck. Now watch. And I lay it down at your feet. I let go of it. I can't hold on to stuff like this. So I'm going to set it down at the foot of the throne. And I'm going to turn my hands away from it again. Now, what state are my hands in? They're empty. They're empty. I've let go of my plans. I've let go of my possessions. I've let go of everything. I have denied myself. Everything that I had was in my hands, and I just put it down. Now I have empty hands. What can I have in those hands? I can have the blessings that God wants me to have. I can have the freedom for him to put whatever he wants to put in my hands. And you know, what he puts in my hands might not be what I wanted. But it was what I needed. It was what I had to have in order to grow to be who he wanted me to be. So that's what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus says, when we come to life following Christ and we come with everything in our hands like this, we can't put anything down. We ain't going to let go of it. Right? We have to be careful when we, if we do come like this, we put everything, we lay everything at the foot of the cross, when we get up and we get ready to walk away, don't do this. 
This ain't luggage. You're not at the airport. We need to leave it there. But if our hands are like this, what can't we receive? (laughs) Anything. You can't hand me anything when my hands are like this. You can't put anything in my hands when my hands are like this. So when Jesus says that those who lose their life for his sake will find it. For his sake, I'm going to put it all down and lose it. And then I find that he's put stuff in my hands that I need to have. And should we die for Christ? Scripture tells us that's a blessing, that's an honor, that's, that's, there's all kinds of different terminology used in the New Testament for those who die because of the name of Christ. But Jesus just told us we need to die to self. So that's all of us, right? <laughs> when we die, if we've lived for Jesus' sake, then we will find that kingdom that he's prepared for us. In his father's house, there are many rooms, right? We've got lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of stuff to look forward to. We can't afford to be myopic in our faith. So then Jesus poses two rhetorical questions. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Think about that for a minute. What good does it do for a person to have all the wealth, all the security, all the fame, all the fortune the world can offer, and he forfeits his life? I see a lot of posts online about Bill Gates and George Soros and the Rockefellers and and all of these folks. And you know what every one of them has in common? They're going to die. What good does that wealth do them? None. None. None whatsoever. These questions were designed to make the disciples think. And... If you think about it for a minute, one of them should have thought a little bit harder on these questions. Because Judas is standing there when Jesus says this. What good does it do for a person to have all the wealth, all the security, all the fame, and all the fortune the world can offer, and he still dies? And then he takes it just a little bit further What shall a man give in return for his life? How much can you offer God to buy your life back? Nothing. What do you give a God who literally has everything? He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't have to milk them, but he owns them. (laughs) Glad the farm wasn't that big. He's got everything. And if there was anything that he was lacking, 
What would he have to do to create it? Just speak a word. He could think it into existence. So if the answer to those two questions is what good does it do a person to gain the whole world and forfeit his life or, or what, should a per, what can a person give in exchange for his life, if the answer to those two things is nothing, then why do we live like there's a value attached to our soul? Like the money in the bank is what makes our soul better. Or the size of our house, or the speed of our car, or the, the, the decibel meter on our sound system. <laughs> Not picking on you, Tim. I like loud music too. Why do we live our lives in that way? Because that's our nature. That's why Jesus tells the disciples that if you're going to follow me, you've got to give life back to the one who gave it to you in the first place. Now, I said we might get to the end of this chapter. I was wrong. Because there's too much to discuss in verses 27 and 28 to finish it today. Verse 27, Jesus says, The Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. There is something that that does not mean. That does not mean that our salvation is based on what we have done. This is Jesus is talking about the same thing that Paul was talking about when he wrote to the Corinthians. And he said, on that day your works will be judged. And the, the things you have done that are for the kingdom, the things that are profitable, will be like gold, silver, and precious gems. And the things that are worthless will be like wood, hay, and stubble. And they will be judged as though they go through fire. And what happens to wood, hay, and stubble when it goes through fire? You have smoke and ash. And what happens to gold and silver and precious gems when they go through fire? they become purified and even more valuable. That's what Jesus is talking about. And what about those who do not have Christ? How's He going to repay their works? They're going to be judged. Have they sinned? Okay, let's do a little work in the book of Romans. Thank you. Romans 3.23 All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? All means who? Everybody. So if you die with Christ, your works will be judged and you'll be rewarded according to those works. Wood, hand, stubble, gold, silver, precious gems. If you die without Christ, sheep go over here, goats go over here. They'll be judged according to their works. They will be repaid for what they have done. Verse 28 just to leave a little bit of controversy before we have the Lord's Supper. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. That is a verse that has confounded people for about the last 2,000 years. Because I don't know about you, but I haven't seen Jesus come back yet, and the disciples are all dead. So we're going to have to look at that verse next week 
to see if we can figure out what Jesus was talking about. 